everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, to another weekend, a very sterling, historic, amazing, once and a half century weekend to the other side of midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn where anything can happen, including uh, technical glitches and uh, people like me getting dates wrong and not communicating well and all that. Tonight, yes, we have him with us. The one and the only Neville Thompson is literally waiting on the Skype line all the way from pre-pre-dawn in the uh, Green Isle of Britain. And we will bring him on momentarily. Uh, I've got several things to update you on, so let's swing right into it. Um, At the top of the hour here, we have news. If you go to, if you're new to the show and you need to get to our webpage, which of course is really important. We're, you know, we kind of started this as a kind of a pioneering experiment, something called radio with pictures. Because many, many years ago when Art conned me into doing this, he said uh, very brightly one day, why don't you get a webcam and we can both be on television together as we do the show? And I said, are you nuts? And that was the end of that discussion. So, um, because I believe radio should be radio. Radio should be audio. It should be the sounds in the night. Um, many years ago when we had open lines, I had a, a woman on and as she was you know, asking a question or making a comment, whatever, in the background, there was this incredible evocative train whistle which instantly brought to mind a chapter in Carl Sagan's book, uh, Cosmic Connection. Remember, he was a little kid brought up in Brooklyn, used to stand out in an open field and spin around opening his arms trying to do a John Carter and teleport himself to Mars through consciousness when he was just a little kid. Anyway, he wrote in Cosmic Connection a whole chapter called Night Train to the Stars. And it's because he, like me, just resonates and responds to night train whistles. And sometimes here in the Land of Enchantment, across the valley on the other side of the Rio Grande, uh, in the summer particularly, if the windows are open, you can hear the trains and their whistles and their night trains to the stars. Anyway, um, if you're new to the show, you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, you click on tonight's banner, which says very brightly in red underneath uh, the Neville Thompson story. And Neville, of course, is cringing when he hears that because he doesn't think like none of us think that our stories are interesting. And my attitude is that every story is interesting. Otherwise, why would we all be here simultaneously at the most critical, stunning breakpoint in modern human history, which literally begins this weekend with the launch of Artemis One, and that, of course, is going to be the three hours of tomorrow night's show. But tonight is kind of a prelude because while we have not been back to the moon for like half a century, literally, it's been 50 years since Apollo 17 left and returned for the last time in half a century. Uh, We're beginning it all over again with a brand new uh, mission uh, program name, mythological connections and a stunning database that we now know and i'm going to lay out tomorrow night for three hours the astonishing breakthrough earth civilization shattering paradigm shattering stuff that's waiting for all these very naive very earnest very um upfront NASA people who have no idea. I mean, it's so obvious. They have no idea the doorway they're about to open. So speaking of doorways, uh, that's the featured banner tonight. You click on that on the main page that will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, you'll see uh, where it says fast links to items, uh, the duplicate of the banner at the top. Click on my name. Richard, and that takes you to my items in Radio with Pictures. As you can see from item number one, um, in the summertime at Cape Canaveral, weather is always a problem in the summertime for launches. Uh, Thunderstorms, convective cells, 
and there are all kinds of mission rules that you can't have thunderstorms within so many miles of the pad and you can't have lightning within so many miles of the pad this was put in place after the astonishing fact that uh, Apollo 12 uh, literally on the way up was hit by lightning twice twice and everything went bluey and the crew was literally completely dumbfounded and uh, we almost lost them right at that point. So after that, NASA initiated mission flight rules that say if there's even a thunderstorm thinking of forming, you don't launch. Uh, I'm, I'm being a little extreme, but they got really super uh, conscious of thunderstorms in Florida. Kind of late, but better late than never. Anyway, so if you click on that link, that kind of gives you an up-to-date status of the Artemis One unmanned launch of the most powerful rocket since the Saturn V, which will send um, an unmanned duplicate of the uh, Artemis uh, command module, a bigger version of the Apollo command module, same conical shape, but much, much, much more room. I mean, when they actually put people on this thing, which will be in a year and a half or so, uh, it has room for a galley and a gym, uh, to say nothing of a private bath. I mean, how far we have come in 50 years. Anyway, um, the unmanned version uh, launches Monday morning at 8.33 a.m. Eastern uh, Daylight Time. Now, I'll say right here and now, and I'll make this a firm prediction, uh, that it's not going to launch on Monday. But you got to get up, you know, if you're on the West Coast, you got to get up three hours earlier, you know, like at 5.30 a.m., uh, one of our our colleagues is out there, not in D.C., where he normally hangs out. So he's going to get up. Actually, the the coverage on NASA television begins even earlier, like a couple hours earlier. So uh, um, for those of you who are really intrigued with this idea of opening the doorway this time, not to ever close it again, you might want to get up and, and uh, catch the pre-launch show. All the networks, all the cable networks, they're going to be covering this. This, this is, as uh, the president said to uh, Barack Obama many, many years ago, it's a big effing deal. And for totally separate reasons that it looks like almost nobody in NASA except those in the deep, 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 no, I'm not going to say state, I'm going to say interior of the agency I think know what's waiting. I think that's why a whole bunch of things have suddenly kind of fallen into line. And I will explain all of this enigmatic stuff tomorrow night. But tonight we're going to do the prelude with Mars. I mean, tonight we're going to Mars uh, and then back to the moon tomorrow. So um, again, that's item number one. That will that blog, by the way, if you want to bookmark it, that gives you almost now hourly updates. The, the countdown started uh, this afternoon. It's a very long, very complicated countdown of the most complicated rocket that NASA has put together since the Saturn V. And, uh, you know, all kinds of things, even when you test them a dozen, two dozen, three dozen times, something can go wrong. So this is a flight that's going to be stressing all aspects of the spacecraft, the hardware, the rocket, the uh, command module, the escape system, the uh, autonomous navigation. I mean, really, th this stuff may look superficially like, you know, Apollo form follows function. If you're going through an atmosphere, you got to be conical shaped. If you're a ballistic reentry vehicle, et cetera, et cetera. But believe me, what's on the inside is half a century more advanced than Apollo was. And you need to keep in mind as you're following this mission, which is going to go on for six weeks from the launch on Monday morning, uh, six weeks, 42 days, before they splash down uh, just off San Diego. And about half the U.S. Navy goes out to pick them up. <clears throat> that last part is a lie. There's going to be one cool ship which will literally hover over the uh, floating spacecraft and will bring it aboard, uh, unlike the way it was done 50 years ago with Apollo. Um, now, I, I, when one wanders through these discourses, one has a tendency to kind of lose your train of thought. So the, the launch manifest says 
very forthrightly again and again and again that this test flight, this Artemis One launch, which would be the most spectacular launch since, uh, well, since the Saturn V that I was so incredibly to see in person, I think I was able to see three of them just uh, three miles away from the launch pad there at the um, uh, press center, which is located just to the right of the vehicle assembly building, that huge, biggest cube in the world with the uh, NASA logo on the side of it. Um, so, yeah, watching a Saturn V launch in person and feeling, as uh, Cronkite described it in the booth, the low rhythmic resonant pounding of his chest because of the low frequency sound waves. I mean, that was a six million ton booster, six million pound booster lifting off on seven and a half million pounds of thrust. Well, this rocket, when it takes off, will have 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust in addition to the four uh, R25 engines, uh, liquid fuel engines burning underneath. There'll be the two solid rocket boosters igniting simultaneously. It will be spectacular. It'll be an 833 launch. And my prediction is it will not take place on Monday. They will go on Thursday, the 4th of, uh, I'm sorry, four days later, the 2nd of September. And uh, I kind of laid out uh, last week why I feel this is going to happen. And it'll be interesting to see if it happens as I predict. If it doesn't, I will readily admit my mea culpa and we will move on. But I really think that it's not going to go until later in the week, which will give you more time to kind of listen to and digest the astonishing stuff that I'm going to try to cram into three hours tomorrow night. Wait till you... See, um, I often say that with all this going on that, uh, you know, these things will knock your socks off. So I strongly recommend that you, uh, you got a day, go out and buy extra socks because you're going to lose them. I guarantee, particularly when you see the CIA involvement, which I can now document with specific numbers, their involvement decades ago, totally unsung and unspoken and uncovered by the press, the CIA's deep involvement, which I can prove with the moon. And that opens up an extraordinary uh, can of worms and a tale to be told and all those other well-worn cliches. Anyway, um, item number two in uh, Radio with Pictures, right under the uh, weather remaining favorable for the launch tomorrow. I'm sorry, Monday. Um, Stephen Bassett, who is my friend and colleague, and I've known him for decades, and he has been the kind of lone UFO lobbyist in Washington for literally decades, um, you know, traipsing up to the hill, talking to whoever would listen to him, doing a lot of media from Washington, including Fox. He's one of the few people that I know that's been on Fox quite a few times. Um, Stephen Bassett, this weekend, uh, starting today, is being profiled in a very, very, very mainstream, very well-read, it's like everybody in the in crowd in Washington reads this uh, when it comes out, Washingtonian Magazine, a full four-color glossy thing in, in hardcover as well as on the web. And we are very fortunate that he sent me a link. So if you want to see a profile of Stephen Bassett and... Uh, how he got into being the only UFO lobbyist for the last several decades in downtown Washington. He up to and including ran for Congress from Maryland some years ago on the disclosure platform. Well, it's all coming full circle and literally uh, two days away from the Artemis launch where we formally begin this extraordinarily interesting process of returning humans Americans to the moon. Uh, the Washingtonian Magazine just coincidentally does a very long range and very detailed profile of our friend, um, friend of the show, Stephen Bassett, who is, by the way, not in Washington, so he is going to have to get up at the crack of dawn to see the launch on Monday morning. And if I was really, really confident in my prediction, which is not based on, on science, but on mythology and ritual, um, I just tell him to, you know, roll over and, you know, set the snooze alarm for another two hours. But I can't do that because when you're dealing with humans 
and you're dealing with politics and you're dealing with uh, free will, the, the folks that be that are kind of modulating all this stuff behind the scenes, they can change their minds. And then they'll find a really good excuse to tell us, uh, well, they won't tell us. They'll just do it and then they'll make up something about why they decided to kind of obviate the ritual this time. And anyway, we'll be able to talk about that in much more detail next weekend because remember, the artist mission is going to go for six weeks if the hardware works the way it's been advertised. And so we will have successive updates on weekend shows. I'm not going to devote the entire weekend, you know, for the next six weeks to Artemis, uh, but we will certainly, if they wind up doing some of the things that I'm going to talk about tomorrow night in the way of verification on live streaming HD television, the astonishing things that await uh, everyone, then obviously we will focus some of our attention in the coming weeks on what they've done, how they've done it, how they are going to claim Oh my God, look at that. We never knew that was there, which of course I can prove will be a lie tomorrow night. Now, back to uh, Radio with Pictures, item number three. Just in the same time frame that Artemis is going as a kind of a uh, Pathfinder mission uh, in this retrograde orbit looping around the moon for up to uh, 42 days, the SOFIA Flying Observatory. Did you know that NASA for the last several years has had a flying observatory neatly put inside a 747 called SOFIA. And if you want to know what SOFIA stands for, it's an acronym. It's basically an infrared observatory. And uh, I happened to glance at some of the stats uh, yesterday evening when I was putting this up on, on the site. And I did not realize this at the time, but Remember, the, one of the huge mainstays of American science and the incredible revolution in astronomy and space science at the beginning of the 20th century was George Ellery Hale finding the money and then building the world's largest reflecting telescope on Mount Wilson, the 100-inch reflector, which is firmly anchored in concrete and bedrock and has been looking at the stars and taking photographs for literally uh, well over 100 years. Well, it turns out, and I didn't realize this because I hadn't looked in a long time, the SOFIA telescope, the infrared telescope in the 747 that flies around the world and looks at various phenomena that can only be seen from, let's say, Australia or the skies over New Zealand. Uh, so no American observatory on the ground could possibly see it. And of course, uh, orbiting spacecraft would fly through the geometry of what they're looking at much too quickly. Sophia can be on station, kind of orbiting around an, a spot over a, an empty ocean. The mirror, the telescope mirror for the Sophia infrared telescope is 100 inches. So in a century plus, We've been able to take the technology that is sitting at the top of Mount Wilson, make it portable, make it light enough to put in a 747. I can't believe I'm saying this and fly it anywhere in the world to look at all kinds of things in deep space uh, for years before Hubble, uh, not Hubble, Webb came online. I'm going to do that for a long time to come. I, I want to warn you, I'm going to mix those two up because in fact the Webb telescope is being managed and operated by the same Space Science Telescope Institute that manages and operates Hubble so there is a seed of the confusion there anyway moving on speaking of Webb um, they made their first detection of a gas that Hubble has been looking at in exoplanets for you know like a decade and has not been able to find because of the relative smallness of Hubble compared to the extraordinary size of Webb. I mean, uh, Hubble has an 8-inch mirror, 8-inch, eight 8-foot eight mirror, and Webb has a 21-foot mirror. Um, and thereby, you know, it, the, the detection capability, the sensitivity goes up the square of the reflector diameter, so you can see that Webb is approaching with you when you look at detector efficiencies and new instruments and all that, Webb is about a hundred times better as a telescope than Hubble. A hundred times. 
So they pointed it at a distant, uh, uh, what they call a uh, hot Jupiter, which is a planet about the size of Jupiter, that instead of orbiting at Jupiter's distance from our star, which is about a billion miles, this orbits just a few million miles and whips around in just a few days. So they pointed Webb at this star system, which is about 700 light years away, I believe. And lo and behold, the infrared signature, the spectral signature of carbon dioxide popped out immediately. Just bingo, there it was. And I was talking with Chandra Wickramasinghe this morning via Skype. I mean, can you imagine? You can literally sit here in my den, in my library, and I can call anybody on the planet, and if they're awake, I can get them on the equivalent of a video telephone and just have a normal chat anywhere around the planet. I mean, we couldn't do that 50 years ago. We could go to the moon, but we couldn't talk to somebody in Borneo or Thailand or England at the crack of dawn. So uh, uh, Chandra and I were discussing this, and I was pointing out, because as I said last weekend, uh, we're going to put together, we are on the process now of putting together a proposal for NASA. It's got to be in by the 15th of September, so we don't have a lot of time. We got a little less than a month, but he sent me the outlines this morning of the proposal. And because I've been so maxed out with getting ready for tomorrow night, I didn't even have time to look at it, but uh, he was very amiable and he was so intrigued that I'm really pushing this. And uh, what we need are some volunteers. We need some science volunteers. If you're a grad student, if you've got a, a major in astronomy or in engineering or in space telescopes, there aren't many of those around. Uh, I'd like you to contact me through the other side of midnight because we're putting together a team. This is never done these days by one person. We will have if they accept the proposal. And if you read some of the links, and I'll put those up uh, probably next weekend, it turns out that they have radically changed their whole proposal methodology for soliciting interesting science from astronomers and university folks and even citizen scientists in a way that wound up um, with one of the proposals uh, being accepted sight unseen because they're they're done now in a totally anonymous fashion. So the review boards in in NASA at the Space Telescope Institute, they don't know who's submitting the proposal. They don't know if they're, you know, attached to Berkeley or Harvard or they're working out of a garage. I kid you not. It's totally, totally, totally anonymous. And the decision as to what gets about 6,000 hours a web telescope time per year. I mean, that sounds like a lot, but it goes like snow on the sun side of Mercury. You realize that, of course. So they have to allocate those 6,000 hours. And in this case, um, a proposal came in to look for 24 hours accumulated time at the Trojan asteroids that lead and trail Neptune by 60 degrees because they could be made of very, very interesting and weird stuff. Just like we've got a uh, spacecraft mission called Lucy, which is headed out to the Jovian Trojan asteroids, uh, located 60 degrees ahead of Jupiter in its orbit and 60 degrees behind. These are the Lagrangian L4 and L5 points uh, scaled up, of course, uh, from the Earth-Moon system, where we have gone into great detail about the Lagrange points in the Earth-Moon system over and over and over again and how Webb is kind of orbiting around L2. Anyway, this proposal came in to use incredibly valuable and limited, remember 6,000 hours in a year, uh, web time for 24 hours to look at and to detail the composition and other attributes of the Neptunian Trojans, which orbit the sun 60 degrees ahead of Neptune in its orbit and 60 degrees behind. And then when the proposal was accepted, only then and only then did the committee and everybody else find out that the proposal had been submitted by a 22-year-old graduate student 
She's not even a full-fledged PhD. She's still working her way through college, and her proposal was so damn good that NASA accepted it sight unseen, which is a critical part of the process, which makes me think, and I said it to Chandra this morning, because remember, he was kind of like Debbie Downer last weekend. Oh, they won't do this, and oh, they won't do that, and oh, they'll cover this up. And I mean, I, I totally agree. That's been the NASA of old. But there's a new NASA kind of like the phoenix being born. And you can see these little green shoots of the new NASA being born. And we're going to really, really, really see the test of this model when it comes to how they're going to talk about and provide us the stunning video evidence from Artemis of what's really waiting on the moon. Now, you know they've been kind of doing this with Mars, except they haven't told us what's there. The most amazing things are being photographed by the rovers, both curiosity and perseverance. And yet they put them out there, they give us raw images, and they never say a word about the astonishing, obviously artificial stuff. I mean, so obvious that everybody and his brother and sister and, and uh, you know, fiance can look at the pictures and go, oh my God, that's artificial. Everybody on the planet, like 99.99%, and we actually ran a survey when a few weeks ago this incredible Martian doorway became public, courtesy of our uh, colleague and guest tonight, Neville Thompson, and NASA ultimately had to put out a gigapan and had to put out stills and had to put out color, and then they put out their stupid, absurd, ridiculous, you've got to be kidding, nonsense excuses for what it is. It's a door on Mars. Remember the uh, old Apache saying from uh, the country in which I'm living, uh, it only takes one white crow to prove all crows aren't black. Well, we've got a flock. We've got hundreds of flocks of white crows all over Mars and the moon. And for half a century, NASA has resolutely refused to even touch seriously the idea that there's anything besides rocks in all these amazing and increasingly uh, improved quality images. They just ignore it. You know, the old maxim is if you don't acknowledge uh, what, the, what the hoi polloi are saying, maybe they'll go away. So my item number five, um, courtesy of uh, Ron Gerbron, who will, as I said, be joining us in the third hour tonight. Ron found, after I posted this very large image of the door, which came directly, Neville, by the way, from your Gigapan, uh, the only one that really allowed us to see the fact that on the left side of the door jam, there is a pillar, a beautiful square geometric pillar with a pyramid on top. It's pointed kind of like a miniature Washington monument. And all up and down vertically, there are hieroglyphs. The resolution isn't quite good enough to tell us what they're saying, even if we had a bilingual and we could translate from uh, Old Martian into whatever Earth languages we might want to apply now. But Ron found this extraordinarily tall totem pole in, the, um, uh, in Central America, a Mayan totem, which is covered with carvings and faces and hieroglyphs. And, you know, I'm kind of using hieroglyphs as the generic, kind of like hieroglyphs really are Egyptian but I'm using it like we use the term Kleenex. Remember, Kleenex used to not be just a brand name tissue in a box. It was, it was, uh, it, it got generalized to where you, you say to someone, hand me a Kleenex. And even if it's a store name, it's still quote a Kleenex. So by metonymy, um, the, uh, the, uh, the glyphs and the language on this totem, this Mayan totem, I'm terming hieroglyphs as a kind of a significator of a ancient language which most of us can't read, but which obviously has detailed information encoded in the figures and in the letter forms and in the geometry. Well, by going to Neville's uh, Gigapan and doing a little bit of, of, uh, of uh, enhancements, because there's, there's always more signal, uh, we see a stunning close-up version of the doorway on the left of my item number five, and on the right is the totem with the glyphs on it that uh, uh, Ron found. And again, he'll be talking about his new find between last week's show that we'd planned with Neville and uh, 
due to circumstances beyond both our control, he was unable to be here. Uh, so we kind of punted and did open lines, and that worked out really well. Well, tonight we're going to get a chance to talk to the man himself, and we're literally at the bottom of the hour, so we're going to postpone until we come back um, the Neville Thompson story. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and I've been joined by a little furry friend. We shall return. Side of Midnight for this Saturday, August 28th, two days before the launch of our 50-year return to the moon. And tonight our guest is Neville Thompson. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Neville uh, in a moment, but I wanted to pick up on one item that I did not get to in the uh, period uh, before the break. And that is what came out of my conversation with Chandra Wickramasinghe. Remember, Chandra is probably the preeminent astrobiologist on Earth tonight. Decades ago, he and his colleagues found, between the stars and the interstellar dust, the unequivocal, scientifically unequivocal signature of little frozen microorganisms, countless trillions of them floating between the stars as part of the interstellar dust. And what do you think happens when those clouds of dust sweep through extraterrestrial solar systems around the galaxy? Billions and billions and billions, if not a hundred billion, other Earth-like worlds where if you drop the right little beastie in the pond, it evolves and grows and thrives and someday create spaceships to continue the journey out. So we were talking about what would be required for life and how you would detect it using Webb to look at spectral signatures. And that's when he kind of dropped a little bombshell on me because he said, well, he said, we were talking about the carbon dioxide found in this hot Jupiter by Webb just a few days ago, 700 light years away with that incredibly tall and very incredibly high signal level uh, spectral signature there in my item number four. He said, well, you know, of course, that carbon dioxide is an indicator of, of life. And there was this long pause in the conversation. And I said, what? 
He said, yeah, like oxygen, you know, because of the uh, chemical imbalances and thermal equilibrium and non-equilibrium and all that. Exothermically, you really only get carbon dioxide, not carbon monoxide with one carbon, but uh, carbon dioxide with two, because of a process that is basically a living system. Processing of the gases into uh, ultimately combining them, oxygen and carbon, into carbon dioxide. Which means floating in the atmosphere of this hot Jupiter, 700 light years away, there might be some kind of living organisms. As well, there might be on Venus. Remember the flap a year or so ago about maybe phosphine being an indicator of ancient life on Venus or current life? And of course, the predominant uh, component of the Martian atmosphere is carbon dioxide, CO2. So what Chandra, who again, remember, is the prominent exobiologist, astrobiologist in the entire solar system, as far as we know, um, if you see a lot of excess carbon dioxide, it basically could be a fossil relic of ancient life where the carbon dioxide is currently hanging out. And the best is yet to come. Neville Thompson currently resides in County Durham in the United Kingdom. And he says um, he began reading everything he could way back when, when he was just a little kid growing up in ancient history, uh, Egyptian, Roman, Greek, Indian, Sumerian, learning about these histories and trying to understand what had actually taken place in humankind's ancient past. So much has been lost, or he writes, deliberately hidden from us intentionally or unintentionally, that's kind of the art form which we're trying to figure out. In 2011, he created the group Alien Life, focusing on images from the Apollo missions and the unmanned Mars rovers and landers, un uncovering artifacts and structures that in his opinion, and he's got a lot of experience, could not possibly be, he says categorically, of natural origin. In 2012, Neville was contacted by Jose Escamilla to enhance images from the Clementine unmanned lunar mission for the film Celestial. He currently administrates the other Space and Mars Anomaly groups on Facebook. In these groups alone, the membership is over 113,000 people all around the world. And the number is growing and growing fast. He also supplies these groups with gigapans from the Mars Curiosity and Perseverance rovers. In fact, uh, in total over the years, Neville Thompson estimates that he has created over 6,000 gigapans of official images from NASA, from the Moon, from Mars, and even a couple of other places in between. So without further ado, Neville Thompson, come on down. Hello, Richard. <laughs> oh, nice it is so great! It is so great to finally meet you because I've been I've been meeting your work over the years, and I've got to say right up front that of all the people that are doing the citizen science work, um, who are doing you know public gigapans based on the raw image data that NASA, in their infinite wisdom, releases but does not make any comments, uh, you have been among the leadership because, for one thing. There are other people out there who do really good work, and we won't mention their names tonight, so we won't embarrass them, but they don't get the color right. They keep buying into the nonsense that Mars is this horrible, icky, make you want to vomit, butterscotch, you know, green, yellow, when in fact it's just like Earth. And there's all kinds of science that where we can, and I've done this endlessly on the show, we can prove 
that Mars looks like Earth. It looks like the incredible red rock country that I live in that Robin used to love to uh, take long drives that we would go to Flagstaff and, you know, go past all those incredibly ancient red rocks between here and northern Arizona. And it, if you landed and didn't know where you were, kind of like, uh, what was that famous movie with, um, with uh, O.J. Simpson? Uh, Capricorn One where NASA, you know, fakes a mission to Mars because they just can't make the technology work. Um, you would not know, except for the gravity uh, being different. Gravity on Mars is about one third the uh, gravity here. So you would have a very interesting uh, spring in your step. But otherwise, it would look uh, without the spacesuit, just like uh, like Earth. And you're one of the few, Neville, that seem to get that idea that you know, you don't put out these awful butterscotch, idiotic, you know, projections. You put out the real data, which is nicely white balanced to look like what it really looks like. And and there's a whole bunch of other scientific data which I can bring forward to uh, to document and to buttress that argument. But you, from the beginning, have been doing the real science, the real presentation. And I got to say, um, this whole doorway thing just you know, pun intended, it was a doorway to a whole new way for an awful lot of people to look at the NASA data coming down from Mars. So let me start going way, way, way back. Um, Neville Thompson, this is your life tonight. How did you get into all of this? And at what early age did you get obsessed with ancient history, both terrestrial and beyond? I think it was... Um Oh, way back when I was about 10 or 12. Ah. My dad, dad bought a book by um, Eric von Dannegan. Oh, my Carrots God, yes. Gods. Yeah. And um, my dad f- f- finished reading it. And he says, oh, here's a book for you to read. You might find it uh, quite good. And um, I couldn't uh, put it down, you know. It was absolutely brilliant, you know. I loved it, loved it. And then... Over the years, I went round the old second-hand bookshops trying to find more of his uh, books, you know. I've got most of his books now, and I think he's brilliant, you know. Excellent. I love his work, you know. Um, But from then, um, I I got the the, the internet in and and that, and um, I thought, like, I never really hit... Where I live, it's like a small village, and um, oh, you're like me. You're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm living at the top of a big hill, and there's no one else around us. <laughs> no, um, but um, no, there was no one else around that was into like. So you had no one to talk to at the age of ten, when you found all these astonishing uh, no, uh, no one, no history one. and data that that Bondonikin was writing about. And you know, of yeah. course, he was incredibly controversial at the time. Oh yeah, you know. But his books were international bestsellers, which means a lot of people—not the gatekeepers, but just ordinary folks—really uh, kind of resonated. And you were one of them. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I used to read all all sorts of books. There was someone else that I used to read all the time. Uh, it was supposed to be a Tibetan Lama called Rabsi um, Lama Lama uh, T. I don't I don't know his name, but it was a, um, a Tibetan Lama who wrote books, you know, and <laughs> oh, it was good. It was good. Um, but I was always reading stuff that no one else really was interested in, you see. So that's really the foundation of her becoming a citizen scientist. And as I've always said, you know, my only claim to fame is I'm a generalist. I know a lot about a lot of different things, some of them not too much, just enough to get by at a cocktail party for maybe an hour or two. But it's it's having a curiosity. And of course, now with the Internet and Google and, you know, back then it was really hard unless you, you know, haunted libraries or secondhand bookstores. But now almost everything, if you're just persistent, you can find it somehow online. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
out of trying to anything online. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm on the internet 24 <laughs> seven. I don't, I don't, I don't have a telly in the house. I don't watch uh, normal. I don't watch uh, television at all. I'm just constantly doing pans or on the on the internet. You know, and there's a there's a load of rubbish on telly anyway. So, so uh, what kind of from the age of ten you're doing this whole reading thing? What kind of more formal education did you wind up going to? What we call gymnasium or, or high school over here? Yeah, I went. To, I went to the normal schools. I went to a, um, just the normal. Uh, comprehensive school, you know. I didn't really, um, I didn't really have high high grades or anything. I um, I did have an interest in drawing and painting and stuff like that. So ah. I went to co- I went to college. I um, I got a degree in art and everything. Uh, but so but that's where your ability to see things comes yeah. from. Like yeah. Andrew Curry, who was one of our uh, resident artist. He lives in Canada. He does, uh, uh, you know, work for Hollywood for commercials and films and all that. He does storyboards and, you know, yeah. lays out, you know, plot outlines and all that incredible visual form. And we're having him for our own Mars book. We're having him and Keith Laney do a series of graphic novel vignettes, which he's yeah. really good at. So your eye for seeing that this stuff could not ever be natural came from your art inclinations. Oh yeah, I think people who who um, who are, are artistic can see better. You can see slight differences in in tones and colors and things like that. You can see when things are being erased over or or hidden. You know, you can see fine details that. Um, Normal people, well, I'm not, I'm not saying <laughs> can't, can't say them. I love I'm that. Not saying no. I'm, not, I'm not saying them anymore. Well, you know, there was an actual scientific study by the Boeing company many years ago. This is long free computers because uh, they needed draftsmen. They needed people who could basically take uh, a 3D computer, uh, not computer, but, uh, uh, you know, a blueprint model yeah, and turn it into hardware. And that requires an ability to take the 2D diagrams off the blueprint and in their minds transform them into 3D. It turned out from their formal study that one third of the population, this is not just Americans, it's all over the world, one third have this capability. Another third can be taught how to do it. They can be trained, they can be educated, they can kind of open up their inner artist. And one third is hopeless. They, they just cannot see 3D geometry, and to them, what we see are instant artifacts they just see as rocks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even when I was, I mean, this could be just me imagining, well, it is me imagination, but usually when I was lying in bed and you looking at the curtains, there's a pattern on the curtain, you would see different shapes, you would see faces and things like that, you know, and then you would wake up in the morning and try and find them and they'd be gone, you know? So yep, yep. That's, that's your imagina- imagination um, working, you know? But um, <clears throat> the thing is, you've got to, when looking at the Mars images, you've got to try and not do that. You've got to try and try and show that they, they are actually there, not just in your imagination, you know. You you find something, you leave you leave it for a while, then you go back and you see if you can see it again. Mm-hmm. If you can see it again, other people will, will be able to see it. I mean, I've got thousands of images that... Um, oh, many times I'll look at an image and I won't see anything and I'll come back and I'll begin yeah. to see this and then that and then finally it kind of all bursts. It's I, I'm, I'm really still grappling yeah. with... Is it because it's so hard or is there something in yes. the human psyche where yeah. we have been programmed not to see this stuff? I don't know. It could be. I don't know. It just could be. It could be that, yeah. Yeah. The thing I hate is when people find stuff and then they color it in. Oh, the color. idiots. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. I, oh. I think, right. If it's if it's there, you will see it. Don't 
color it in and show us what you're See, singing. what you're doing, and of course uh, there's a handful of us that do this, you know, is you're mixing the art, the imaginative side, with the science, yeah. which is yeah. it's got to be reproducible. You can't yeah. add frills. You can't add filigree. Don't. You can't yeah. Victorian Baroque it up. Otherwise, you lose the whole point. It's, it's there in its naked beauty. You just have to yeah. understand how to see it. See, the thing is, when I make the pans, I could enhance, really enhance it up so things would show up. But there's not only people who are looking for things, there's, there's uh, people who, are, uh, like geologists and that, who are looking at them as well. So you can't over, you can't over enhance them. No, no, of course not. Because I make them for everyone. I make them for everyone to use. And um so you got a degree in art, like people who get degrees in philosophy or yeah, fine art yeah. or whatever, in architecture, and then you found out that in the job market, there's not much of a call for artists. So no, what, what no, did you do? There's not, there's not. I ended up working in a, um, in an office in a reception. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, yeah. But, well, at the time, well, at least it wasn't the mail room. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> but actually, I have worked in the mailroom because from us switching... Did you ever see that movie, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying? Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the actor. He's a brilliant actor, young actor, kind of short. Um, he has uh, he has uh, Parkinson's now, and he's working on, on a cure for Parkinson's. He's uh, set up a whole foundation. But he starred in this brilliant film, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, in the 1950s, and it tracked him from the mailroom to where he became a senior executive or whatever. It was it's hilarious, a wonderful film of, of corporate America and how the most improbable entry can wind you up succeeding if you know that you want to do something. Right. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to download that. And, it's on that thing called the internet. Yes, I know. There's lots of things on the internet. Yep, yep. I mean, I'm, I'm an avid, avid co co collector of movies and films, old TV series. So, the whole so, so, so you wound up working for because we got about ten minutes to the top of the hour, and then I want to swing oh, right, to the data. Yeah. So you wound up yeah. working for corporate, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And 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 what is your current day job? Or do you have one? Yeah, I have a current day job. It's um, it's I work from home. Well, I work from home and I go to the place where it's a, it's a little shop up in the village where we print uh, canvases and things like that. You know, people come in with photos on the phone and they want their uh, canvas made of it and stuff like that. Just to oh yes, yes. Well, so your your passion has become your profession. Oh yeah, yeah. See, I work with. Uh, I I deal with the PC side of it. I, I, I work with the images. I enhance them up and make them bigger and stuff like that and pass them on to the, um, the person who prints them, you see. So many, I, I many, many years ago, Robin and I went to a little town here in northern Arizona, northern Mexico called Madrid. And yeah. we found a gallery where someone was doing a technology transfer into these very large canvases. They were able to take a photograph of a uh, pictograph, like a Native American, you know, rock yeah. carving or whatever. And yeah. and we saw one we wanted and they transferred it. This genius, his name was Woody, it was his gallery. Um, he transferred it from being like two or three inches high to where yeah. the canvas hanging on the uh, living room wall, uh, which yeah. was behind Robin when she did her last video, um, it, it measures like four feet high and right. it, it's stu the transfer, the technology transfer. It's like you had a piece of this little uh, carved Indian icon on the rock. And now right. it's literally hanging on dominating one wall of the living room. That's the technology that you do. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, I've, I've had. Have you ever done any of the Mars stuff that way? Oh yeah, yeah. I've got a big uh, really got, got a canvas of uh, Mount Mercury on the living room wall. It's about three foot long. It runs across my back wall. Yeah, and um, I had a I had a, um, a science mu museum in Canada. Con con 
co- co- contact us about using one of my gigapans gig, for a new um, area they were Oh, making. how wonderful. And, um, so how expensive is this transfer? Because I, I wanted to have some other things done. And right. for one reason or another, we never we never followed through. You know, the life is filled with noise. And every yeah. once in a while, you get to do the thing you want to do. And the rest of the time, you're taking care of housekeeping. Oh, so, yeah. and uh, at the time, it was very rare and expensive. I mean, I paid a pretty penny for this. But it, I look at it, and I realize that this would make this incredible NASA reality so visible to so many people if you could basically make it a, a, a viral thing where it became an art rage. It became the talk yeah. of the town. It became, you know, the latest fad. Yeah, they have Mars images on your wall. Or yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I could, I, could, I, could, I could do it, you know, but we only print up to a certain size, you see. We don't do, like huge wall sizes or stuff like that, you know. Uh, could, you, could you do them as mosaics? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. So, so you can make a small one and then you can make bigger bigger um, side panels and ultimately build out to those would cover oh, a whole yeah. wall. Oh, yes, yes, easy, easy. So how yeah. complicated is the technology now? Because this was like, you know, 15 years ago that we found this and, and I had to have it. And it's very symbolic, uh, you know, it's got redolent symbolism, um, yeah. which goes all the way back to Sirius. You know, can you imagine right. Native Americans were inscribing oh, on yeah. rocks, you know, ISIS? Amazing. Yeah. And ISIS Amazing. is supposedly, you know, Egypt, just Egypt. Right. right. Um, yeah, we, um, yeah, you can have it done. The, the, it's not very uh, hard to uh, do, really. You've just got to make your image the size of the, the canvas you're going to print on, you know? But the, the image that you ha- that you start off with can't be really tiny. You've got to, it's got to be a decent size, or you know? Um, otherwise, you just get a, a blurred... Oh, thing. it has to have a certain resolution. It's like, it's like any yeah. other imaging technique. Do yeah. you do you take orders? Could people send you an email? You know, because we have listeners all over the world. We're in 190-some oh, yeah. countries. Yeah. So if they send you an email and say, hey, Neville, could you make me a big wall-mounted version of this? And they send you a pretty high-res picture. Could you do it? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, Easy. well, but next to your next to your bio, we yeah. have a link to uh, we have two links: your main website and your Gigapan website. So there's a contact email on your on your main website, right? Yeah, yeah. So if people want a kind of special order, how much does this kind of stuff cost? It costs, um, <clears throat> I would say, something. About that size, about what three foot by two would cost you something like um, over a hundred pound. You know, I would have to work out the exact cost. It's not, it's not me who works out the cost. You see, so that'd be like a hundred and thirty bucks. Yeah, about that, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. That's not much at all. Hell yeah, you can you can spend a hundred and thirty dollars on nonsense. This is immortal. Yeah. Because remember, all this stuff is going to be incredibly historic. There'll be oh, a time yeah. when people go, how did you know? How did you get that on your wall? How did you get one of these rare Neville Thompson prints before everybody was, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, 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 I could uh, do it, yeah, just. Wow. Well, I may be one of your I may be one of your first customers because I have a couple of artifacts. If Kinti is listening, she probably has her her uh, her selection too, and Ron, because I would love to have something uh, of your technology hanging on the wall before everybody gets in on the act. And now we're coming up to the top of the hour, so why don't we pause there? My guest this morning for the first couple hours is Neville Thompson, who has created over the uh, course of his uh, life, and I'm not quite sure exactly how young he is, but uh, he's been around the block. He's done all kinds of other things in addition to art, and now he's doing the thing that he can do so well that he loves doing, which is to transform art into things you can hang on your wall, and they are almost immortal. And... Mars and the moon and other wonders of the solar system 
can be ordered directly by simply going to his main website and following the, the links there. Anyway, um, we're talking with him tonight for the first couple hours. What we're going to do is to uh, uh, do a quick break here at the uh, top of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll be returning with Neville and the description of how he got into creating Gigapans and of all things Gigapans from Mars when we return. This is from the uh, soundtrack to The Martian. I had an email from a, a good friend and colleague the other day and a fan of the show, and she said, how did you know? That's my favorite album. I play it again and again. Well, this one's for you, kid. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.